Welcome to Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast, with your hosts, John Gaspard and me, Jim Cunningham. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Jono. How are you? I'm good. You've got a voice this episode. I do, yeah. I have uh, abused it to the point where my vocal cords just said, okay, screw you. We'll just, whatever you want. What you, it's, you're in charge. We'll just bounce. And they, uh, they have sort of, um, plus it's late in the week here as we record this. And uh, early in the week, still not so good. But late in the week, I usually have what I need. Well, fantastic. Well, this is uh, episode uh, 118, season one, episode 18. Chapter 17, then, if you're scoring from home of the ambitious card. That's right. And today we're very excited to have as our special guest, uh, Carissa Hendricks, a.k.a. Uh, Lucy Darling. Uh, I don't think you knew about Carissa or Lucy before the interview. Yeah, not in a vague sort of way. I, right. I, I, you know, I mean, it was like out there a little bit, but I, I had no real knowledge of her. I had not seen her perform. I certainly had never spoken to her. Uh, but so this was all she and this whole deal was all new to me, which was just fantastic. Well, I first heard her on the podcast Shazam, which she did with Kayla Drescher for a couple of years. And now Kayla's off doing it on her own. And anyway, she uh, as Lucy, darling, she was awarded the Stage Magician of the Year Award at the Magic Castle. Uh, and she also, I believe, I don't think I'm making this up. She holds a world record in fire eating. Is yep. that right? That's exactly right. She's uh, been performing, as we're going to find out in this interview, since her, her late teens, kind of an, an interesting uh, way of jumping into show business. Um, it's, it's really a, a cool interview with someone, I, like I say, I knew very little about, but now uh, I would absolutely try to see her live if I could. Yeah, I would recommend people actually maybe pause us right now and jump over to the notes. We've got some clips of her performing as Lucy, and she's also quite generous about, on her website, posting entire shows. So you can see a full 45, 50-minute set from her and get a sense of just uh, how she works with an audience in the unique way that she does. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm always impressed by the show notes you put together. I'm impressed by this whole thing because really I'm the sidecar guy. I'm just in the, I don't, I come out, I get in the sidecar, we drive around the block and then I get back out and the rest of it just sort of happens. So I'm always impressed by the show notes because there's stuff in there that even I go, wow, that's really cool. So check well, out the show you. notes, folks. And while you're there, uh, we always say this toward the end, but why don't we say it now? Go ahead and rate and review the show. That's a great way to kick the algorithm into gear. And uh, it will literally then show this show to other people who uh, really might like it based on what they're already listening to. So uh, rate us and review us if you can. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because you mentioned it, I'm uh, uh, I'm sort of uh, now curious and interested in uh, checking out that Shazam podcast as well. Shazam is terrific uh, to anyone who's listening to it already. You know that the Eli Marks Mystery Series has been one of the sponsors for the last year or so, uh, but they've been doing it for a couple of years before that. And it, we're, we're going to have Kayla on next season to talk about sort of the mission of that podcast, which is to put themselves out of business. They just don't want to uh, have to be around because what they're really trying to do is point out to the magic world, here's where you're getting it right. Here's where you're getting it wrong. Mm. And they've... Uh, seen some changes in the magic world since then. Uh, and they'll keep at it until 
I don't know if everything will be fixed, but until <laughs> things are, are are better. But we'll, we'll talk about that in season two with Kayla. Right now, let's jump in and talk to uh, Carissa Hendricks about uh, Lucy Darling, uh, how she came to create this, uh, what is right now her most recognizable character. How exactly did Lucy Darling come to be? Oh, that's a good question. So uh, Lucy is not my first character. I've, uh, I've performed as a number of characters. None of them have stuck the way Lucy did. And every character I've ever created has, uh, I kind of, I'm kind of realizing this in retrospect, but in my late 20s, early 30s, I was doing this on purpose, but in my early 20s, I was sort of doing this subconsciously. Every character was sort of a manifestation of something I needed to understand about myself. So when I created Dee Dee, which is my kids show character, I had just started getting a little bit of notoriety. And so Dee Dee was this character who thinks she's famous and she's a big name dropper and she thinks everybody knows who she is, but she's not. And for Lucy, there was this voice that had been in the back of my head. There's, there's a character wanting to come out. She didn't have a name, but I knew she was a little bit, she wasn't really um, a magician so much as she was magical. So she was sort of an opportunity to explore the idea of, because magic is an art form that deals with power. I wanted to explore the idea of what could, is it possible to create a character that is clever and beautiful and wealthy and powerful and smarter than you and still love her? How, how would you do that? That felt like the hardest challenge of my career was to make this character still likable and so you have to think about like what flaws will you give her and so we I made her like a little she's very smart but she's naive in other ways and she's a little fickle and uh she's not very driven and so like I, I got to give her different attributes to till we got something that was still likable and still fun um and a lot of the aesthetic of it and the the voice and stuff come from my love of old movies because I kept thinking like well who are the women who I've seen pull that off well Mae West, Eartha Kitt, Jaja Gabor Catherine Hepburn, Dorothy Parker, these are the women who pulled that off. So, so I took a lot of inspiration from that. And, uh, and I, I told a few people, I want to do this thing. And everybody, and I mean, literally everybody said, that's a terrible idea. That's an awful character. Do not do that character. And uh, so I just, I kept putting it off. I kept putting it off. And then at um, the Atlanta Harvest Magic Convention, I did a class with Zabrecki, who I adore absolutely adore and we didn't know each other at the time I was just some chick and I pitched it to him in the class and he said it was a great idea and that's all I needed I just needed one person and I took that little teaspoon full of approval and I carried that through to the first show and I used that to like empty out my savings and fly out to Australia with a whole new show of material I'd never done before and try to launch this character but I had never been to Australia. So that was kind of my plan was like, okay, nobody thinks this is going to work. And maybe they're right. What do I know? I know. I'll fly to the other side of the literal world and I'll perform it at a convention none of my friends go to. And then if it's terrible, I will just never say anything and no one will ever find out. And now it's like almost four years later and I'm stage magician of the year at the Magic Castle and what the hell happened? <laughs> Who better than Rob to talk about, here's a, an odd idea I have for a character, mm-hmm. as opposed to some magicians, when you ask them about a character, they would say, well, I might try on a hat, or I might try a different shirt, but they haven't put that level of thought into who really is this person on stage, whereas you know, when you talk to Zabrecki, he absolutely knows who he is. When we had uh, Derek Hughes on a couple 
weeks ago, and we were talking about this kind of topic of brand. What is your character brand? And he said, well, you know, his friend Rob Zarecki's brand is uh, Pee Wee Herman meets the Adams Family. And he said, once you have that, it's super easy to write for that because you know exactly what that is. It sounds like you created the brand as you're creating the character. The character and the brand were one and the same for you. Does that feel right? Yes and no. I mean, it's a lot of trial and error. Whenever I'm helping someone else create a new character, we always talk about how whatever you have in your head right now, that's a great starting point. But that's not where we might end up. Because at a certain point, that character is going to have some say in what you're doing. And I know that makes me sound like I've got multiple personality disorder. But the truth is, is that if you do a really good job of your homework at the beginning and you you make good choices about that person's motivations and how they feel about things and what they want and what they what the tone is, at a certain point, you'll want them to do something. You'll go, oh, I know, I'll do this. And they'll kind of be in your head going, I would never do that. I'm not going to do that. And that sort of happened with the Lucy aesthetic. Because when I say like Mae West or the Kajajakabur, in my head at the time, I didn't know enough at the time about costuming to see how different those visuals were. And so the first few costumes Lucy had were not quite right. And I kind of knew that. So when I was in Vegas a few months later, um, I was hanging out with Amazing Jonathan and Anastasia Sin and Pam Thompson and, and Simone. And... Uh, they took me to this like thrift shop and and Anastasia and Pam picked out dresses for me until we found the blue iconic Lucy dress. And so that was sort of the beginning because I don't think I picked that dress, you know, like Lucy kind of picked that dress. And then I had a couple different seamstresses work on it until it was perfect. And then the, the silhouette came. And then from that, I took that dress and I took it to a tailor, I took it to a seamstress and she did, she replicated it. So like the first dress, <laughs> it still went through like three or four iterations. And the, and the brand honestly kind of grew from that dress. Because if you look at early Lucy Darling posters and imagery, it's not quite right. And it's, it's not quite right in a way that I think most people don't totally see. They're like, oh, it's a little, she's just a little doughier and like, a, like in her eyes, uh, like, a little more, a little too naive, a little too not put together, a little too male gazy. Whereas now it's it's so much more like Art Deco, golden blue, like it's way clearer. So yes, the the brand and the character for me do get written in tandem. However, they don't crystallize for a long time. There's a lot of navigating and letting letting her grow up. You know, the other thing I noticed uh, that impressed me, uh, in addition to the magic, which was great, uh, is your ability to engage an audience and sort of roll with the punches. Uh, that is a unique skill set and you have it. So how did you how did you get that, that sort of just talking to an audience and rolling with whatever they gave you and getting huge laughs? I, I listened to saw a couple of things and I'm, I'm curious about that because I don't think that that either is something that most people feel comfortable doing. Yeah, it's it's hard. And I'm very fortunate that so I got into show business at 16 when I got kicked out of the house and I needed to not I need to survive. So it, for me, show business was was like working at McDonald's. It was just the thing I did to make the money to feed my face. And the first gig I got was a mentor of mine just happened to also be casting 
for this haunted house. And the gig was five 15 minute sets a night for 25 minutes. So that was, that was how I got in. That was my first gig. And when you're performing at a haunted house, where I'm performing is a little stage in a room that has carnival games and popcorns and, and, and popcorns, (laughs) popcorn, (laughs) plural. Um, and, and like all, and pictures and there's people coming. So there's a lot of distractions. So the first gig I had was, was basically, I need to hold people's attention or I'm going to get fired and I won't get to eat. So there was this, you know, my first, I remember coming out and I did like a poi act and I did one magic trick and I did some fire eating in my first show and they only watched the fire eating. So I did that for a couple of days and then I came back with a glass walking act, which is something I kind of knew how to do because a summer before I had met this weird sideshow guy and I put the glass walking act. Okay, they watched that. Great. Okay, they watched that. Then I did, then I threw in some jokes and I brought a guy up on stage and had him like break a bottle. Oh, that's engaging. Okay. And so I sort of learned through trial and error. And then after Halloween was done, I had this chunk of money and there were tons of walk around magicians at this gig and a couple of them were asked, oh, can you do balloons? You're really engaging. And we don't have enough balloon artists for the Christmas run. And I went, yeah, I can make balloons, do anything. But it was money. It was better money than I was making doing this show. And so I taught myself on YouTube how to do balloons. And then in January, February, when the Christmas gigs went away, someone was like, hey, can you do still walking on on ice? Like, we don't have a lot of really, you're like, you seem really acrobatic. And I was like, yeah, no, I can definitely do that. I, I bought stilts from a friend. I had, no, I had no idea. And everything has been like that. But since it's all been like that and it's all been me saying yes, it means I've done kids shows. So you learn on the job how to control a group of people and grownups. I'm so sorry. You're not that different from kids. You're just not. When you get in a group, you're kind of the same. You're basically <laughs> the same. You're just polite kids. That's it. And then uh, for a couple of years, I did street performing where you've got to gather a crowd and there's, there's, you don't have the advantage of having a stage or a theater to, to help people know how to behave. So you see people at their rawest. And then the next summer, I did a bar tour where people are drunk. So they go, now they're not even polite kids. They're rude kids. So uh, I think most of it just came from, it wasn't even academic. It was just, I, I had to, to eat. I had to engage people. I had to pull their attention. And when you do that, as I, as I grew up and I started doing characters, you, you learn it even in a different way. Because not only am I learning how to engage all these different kinds of audiences, I'm learning how to, to engage them while being different people. So the way I interact with a crowd when I'm being myself is very different than the way Lucy does or the way Dee Dee does or the way I have a character called Max, Maxmine. Uh, she's a circus performer. She's silent. She engages a crowd totally differently. She doesn't talk, right? She's all eyeballs. She's all, you know, and I think Lucy stole some of her eyeball tricks, but whatever, it's fine. <laughs> um, so I, I think I just have this fairly rich understanding of audiences because I've worked with so many different audiences, but also as different people. Staying on the topic of how funny the character is and how funny you can be <laughs> in that character. One of the things when we talked to Derek Hughes, uh, about mixing comedy and magic was uh, a lesson he got from Eugene Berger on a particular uh, trick where he was killing the magic at the end of the trick with a really good joke. Yep. And Eugene said, you've got to taper, taper, taper and get rid of the, the comedy at the end or else the wonder goes away. I know you have a concept that uh, you call the third surprise 
about mixing comedy magic. Can you explain what that means and, and how you create that balance? Sure. So I was very much going through what Derek went through, where my com- my comedy instincts came first and my magic instincts didn't start developing until late in my 20s. So my comedy instincts were really sharp. And I would find, I would build this drama for this trick. And then I would feel, you just, when, once you've done like a thousand shows, more than that maybe, you have this like alarm that rings in your head where you're like, oh, if I said a funny thing right now, they would die. Like you just know, you just, you just feel the tension. You have this visceral, physical understanding of the room. You breathe with them. You become the room. And when I would build that with the magic, my comedy alarm would go and I would do the joke and it would get a huge laugh, but then I would have wasted that suspense and I wouldn't have it for the trick. Exactly what you're talking about with Derek. And it drove me insane because I was learning the magic rhythm. And what I was learning is that they use the same fuel source. So magic mystery is about, I didn't know a thing. It didn't seem possible. I didn't know where you were going. There was story A. So story A is in magic is the thing you learn in your real life. Things break. Entropy is real. They don't go back together. Or one thing does not magically become two things. That's story A. And then I tell you story B might be a thing. And you go, no, that's not possible. And then I show you that story B is possible. And the journey between story A and story B is where we put mystery. With comedy, it's the same. I tell you a story, story A. Oh, I shot him. I'm going to use a Groucho Marx thing. Uh, this morning, I, sh- I shot an elephant in my pajamas. Story A, I was in my pajama and I shot an elephant. That's ridiculous. Great. Then between story A and story B, I change it, right? How he got in my pajamas, I'll never know. Classic Groucho Marx. Now, your expectations of what the story were are been subverted and that's where comedy comes from. So those are the same. If you really, really break those down fundamentally, those both follow the benign violation principle, right? There is a violation. So... But benign violation is a comedy principle put together by the Humor Research Laboratory, which is the idea of what is funny. So benign violation is a funny thing is some kind of violation. So something that's normal, like a pun, is a violation of language. But it's safe. It still shows you understand the language. So it's safe. So a safe violation is where comedy comes from. And a safe violation is what magic is. I expect the world to work this way. You tell me it doesn't work this way, but it doesn't threaten my sense of existence because within this context, it's a magic trick. And so I find wonder in it. Yay. Okay. So they say have the same fuel source. Well, that's no good because there's a, there's a limited amount of fuel. <laughs> so a show, how do I make a show funny and magical without them robbing from each other? So what I sort of figured out is I need more fuel. There's not enough fuel because they use the same fuel. So my goal now is to add more mystery, more uncertainty, to have more story A, story B break. And the best way I found for my character, I'm sure there's a thousand other ways to do it, was to make it so the audience couldn't really tell if the thing I was setting up was gonna be a magic or if the thing I was setting up was gonna be a punchline. So I messed with the rhythms of both the comedy and the magic so that you didn't know what was coming, which makes the results stronger. But also it means me as an artist, I can change that on the fly. So the chop cup routine is sort of that way, is that the chop cup routine is basically not written the way I traditionally write a script. It's written so that it's like a branching spreadsheet. So no matter what he says, I'm gonna make him wrong. That's my game, that's the game. 
I'm going to use magic. I'm going to use sleight of hand. I'm going to use the methodology behind the chop cup. I'm going to use my words, whatever access I have. I'm going to use that to make that guy wrong in a funny way. So sometimes the best way to make him wrong is to do a comedy. And sometimes the best way to make him wrong is to do it with magic. That's sort of that third surprise principle. Because if the audience doesn't know, based on what I'm setting up, where I'm going, there are there's an extra surprise. It's not just, oh, she did a magic. Oh, it was funny. That surprise. It's also, oh, I thought it was going to be funny, but really it was magical. And so we get more fuel out of the setups for our jokes, the setups for our magic. So it's sort of where Lucy's engine comes from in trying to negotiate those two things. Like the the secret to how that character, like the, if somebody asked me like, what is the real secret to the character? The real secret to the character is that you're the show. Lucy's not trying to perform for you. She's bored and she's trying to push you, the audience, into entertaining her. That's the engine. That's the game of the show. And so that is a game I can play a thousand different ways. But th that's the game, right? The game is like, oh, I can't do this. And then there's other rules, like Lucy can't pick something up off the ground because that's sort of a low status thing. But I drop crap in my show. Sometimes I drop a thing. So what's the game? So sometimes, <laughs> sometimes I drop something and I just stare at a guy in the front row until he climbs on silently. I don't say a word until he silently of his own free will climbs on stage and hands it to me. And the second he gets back to his seat, I just drop it again. And it's the funnest thing ever. And I, and it's not, I know it's not even, I can't be that entertaining for the audience, but I love it so much that I, that I think they feed off of my love for it. Now, when you uh, do something like this, uh, to create a character at this level and the magic is part of all of the things you're doing. Did you do this alone? Did you have a team of people that you worked with? Are you checking in with a director or other magicians? Watch this. What do you think? What are some notes? Tell me about that process. Yeah, I don't tend to think about it as a team. I think about it as, you know, I, I have had tons of help, but the help I get, tends, I like for it to be quite specific because as an artist creating something, you are the editor. You're the filter through which you take in all information. And if you ask for advice indiscriminately, you'll get an indiscriminate answer. Uh, so it's important to narrow your focus to a few people whose opinion you respect and value and who really see what you're trying to do, who get you. So step one I always find is to identify the things in my work I need help with. So early on with Lucy, first step, hire an accent coach. That's what I did. I hired uh, this guy in Calgary. He did the accents for Fargo. He's great. And I, he very quickly realized I wasn't really trying to learn an accent. I was trying to create an idiolect. So it wasn't about teaching me language. It was about constructing a separate, unique accent that had never existed before and then learning that. So he was a genius and I'm so grateful. And I still sometimes listen to the early tapes we've made to like bring the accent back to its original intentions. I'm always because sometimes Lucy gets a little soft in my mouth. If I'm enjoying myself, the, the accent will soften. And so I have to come back and be like, nope, there are rules. However, there are lots of people who give me advice, who are smart, successful, potentially famous people who I, I like them as people. But I don't believe they get the intention of my work. And so I respectfully listen. And sometimes they'll say something that I'll take on board. But I don't just like open my heart to those people. They don't they don't get like full access to the character and all the information. I'm a little bit guarded because if you're not careful, 
someone will pull you away from your intended goal because they'll say something that's true, but it doesn't matter that it's true because that's not what you're working on. That's not the point. <laughs> so I, I think uh, it's, yes, I've had tons of help, tons of help, tons and tons of help. Can you give us a couple of examples of, because the voice is so specific, a couple of examples of the way she should say things. And I'll preface it by saying years ago, we had Patrick Stewart here in Minneapolis at the Guthrie Theater performing uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And he was on a local radio show and they were talking about it. He was Patrick Stewart. He's promoting it. And the, the host said, your American accent is flawless. <laughs> Can you do some of it for us? And he said in British accent, it's not a party trick. <laughs> I don't want to turn this into a party trick, but I am curious as to uh, what are some of the rules that you have well, part of it is where where it lives in your mouth. So if you want to get an accent really down, the so much of it is about oral posture. So the way I talk normally, it, this is pretty much true for everybody, but the way you talk normally, that's the, the way that you talk where you don't have to put any work in because that's your traditional basic oral posture. So what I'm doing, Lucy, part of what I'm doing is I'm moving the voice forward in my mouth and down. So when I normally talk, I feel like my voice is, further further back in my voice and a little bit higher. Not higher in pitch or volume, but higher in the position of my oral posture. So everything I say as Lucy is right at the front, the bottom front of my mouth, and it's quite breathy. So it's, it's quite a lot of work. So a little while ago, I did a, um, I did a little show with uh, a friend of mine, a little fundraiser where we raised, I don't know, a million dollars, quite literally, we raised a million dollars. And uh, because she's fabulous, my friend, I was co-hosting with her, she, we ended up doing a sort of a six-hour live stream. Well, I tend to do this voice for six hours. So if you listen to the last hour of the live stream, it gets really lazy and it becomes this, which is not Lucy. It's somewhere between me and Lucy. And so I always think of it like doing a sit-up. Like when you're, do, when you're doing an accent, you're in a crunch the whole time because you're holding that oral posture. And then there's other things like Lucy is not a pedestrian voice. So when she talks, the game is to find the flounciest word. So, you know, I might say like, oh, I'm going to go to the store. Are you okay with me going to the store? Whereas Lucy would say something like, oh, darling, I, I don't know if you would mind if I went down to the shop for just a moment. I mean, there's a thousand extra words in there, but that's because it's so much softer. So it's not just about oral posture or the sound of it or the pitch of it or the breathiness. It's also about the choice of words and also the way I... Part, the thing that you're really picking up on about the way I normally speak is my rhythm. So my normal rhythm is I, I like to think like I speak somewhere between a millennial and a professor and a preschool teacher. Like that's kind of my regular rhythm. I talk like I'm giving a lecture for children. There's just this, you know, I was a preschool teacher for a while. It, it's how I learned to speak. And so this is just how I talk. I talk like I'm speaking to eight-year-old geniuses. I don't know why. It's just my rhythm. And there's a lot of this thing you're hearing right now, which is a lot of saying something and then pausing and coming. It's very teachery. Whereas with Lucy, so much of the Lucy voice is not just the sound. When I speak as Lucy, it's a much more sing-songy posture or sing-songy rhythm. So as Lucy, I'm always trying to find a little sing songiness in everything I'm saying. And ideally, if I can find the sing-songiness in a single word, that is the best part. That's why people really enjoy listening to Lucy say people's names on stage. So in the Chop Cup routine, one of the games I play is, your name is John, and so I would say John, and then later I would say John, and later I would say, oh, John. 
And I try to say the name stupider and stupider until the name itself is the joke. And so much of that comes from oral posture, sound, breathiness, but also that rhythm that Lucy's always trying to find the the song, the flow and everything. Whereas my actual rhythm is quite staccato. I talk and then I abruptly stop and then I abruptly come back. That And it's just nothing like her. And they weren't, it, Lucy wasn't crafted deliberately to be the opposite of how I actually talk. It's just that when we were making these choices, the accent coach and I were making these choices about this specific idiolect, so much of the reference material I brought in had those qualities. And so it's genuinely the hardest voice, character voice I've ever learned. Because you're right, it really is the opposite of how I actually sound. Whereas when I do D, which is just sort of like high in my mouth and it's entirely oral posture and it's like a little bit rhythm, but like mostly it's just this the entire time. I mean, I could talk as Dee forever and I could do like three hours of Dee before my mouth would get tired, but I wouldn't because um, people find this voice like a little bit annoying unless you're four, then it's not annoying. But if I did this for parents the whole time, people would get really annoyed. So I can't. So I, you know, so there, there, it's not, the, it's not as different. It's just a little higher in my mouth. The oral posture is just sort of up against the roof of my mouth and a little nasally. That's stuff that's easy for my mouth to do. But the low, breathy, mid-Atlantic, rhythmic, rhythmic voice is exhausting. Jeez, it's just <laughs> fascinating. The whole thing is fascinating to me. The thought process, the amount of work, the amount of thought that you have put into creating this character and your work is not something I have encountered outside of, you know, an actor in my theater world, uh, really trying to figure out what you're talking about right now. How does it speak? How does it walk? Uh, you know, what is the, all of that? That's just something I have not seen or heard anybody talk to this degree, um, maybe ever about a character that but this is just fascinating to me the amount of thought that you would put into all this the only other example i can think of would be avner oh i yeah. love avner yeah. yeah avner the eccentric i think has done the same level of thought on more easily yeah. more yeah well, he's been around for a lot longer than you but <laughs> yes if anyone has a chance to see avner's lecture on character it's really really remarkable okay most magicians you I mean you talk about not wanting to get tired of it and quit or not be interested. Jim and I both have seen magicians who have gotten tired and quit, but are still working. <laughs> and we've seen them do that uh, sort that of thing. That is a good dig. That is a good dig because of but the it's accuracy. True. It's, it's true. It's sad, but true. However, there are magicians out there who would like to add some of this kind of thinking to what they're doing, but who don't want to go to the full extreme of, uh, of a that level of a character. Do you have any advice for someone who just wants to up their game 10%? Your physical posture and costuming. That's where you just start. Because when you change how you stand and you change what you wear, you change how you're perceived and you change how you perceive yourself. That's step one. If you want to tweak it, but you're not interested in, you know, for me, when I start with a character, I start with what are, what are their motivations and what do they want and what do they not want? And you know, what are, what wants and needs are they aware of and what wants and needs are they not aware of? Yes, that's a lot of work. I mean, the reason I do this work is because I'm quite, I've always been, even in art school, when you look at my kids, my visual art, I am process driven. I don't so much care what I'm making. I really like making stuff. That's the part I like. I like learning and I like making and I, I like, I actually like doing the work. 
I used to feel like going on stage was like this necessary evil part of the intellectual work I was doing that was the actual fun. But I've been able to build games into my show that now I do actually really enjoy doing my show because the show has now also become the work. But I, I do see a lot of people who get to this point in their show where they are bored. They It's, it's second nature. It's so easy for them. Okay, so if you're bored of your show... And, and you are looking to add a little bit of character, but not a ton, start learning the language of clothing and start learning the language of posture and be really strict with yourself about trying to deliberately communicate something with that, those clothing, that clothing and with that posture, even the same item of clothing, but that fits too tight or that's too baggy. Those communicate two very, very different things to the audience and the way they feel in your body will change the way you act and the way you interact with the audience. So without doing any of the intellectual labor of who is this person and what do they want, those two things alone elevate you. They completely ma they make a character we understand that we know was deliberately crafted for us, which gives the audience a sense of comfort because they know the thing that's happening on stage is professional and they're safe and they're gonna have a good time. Costume and posture. Who would have known? You know, when you think about it, some of the uh, best, most memorable characters in entertainment history have used costume and posture to help create their persona. I immediately think, of course, about Groucho Marx. Our friend Groucho Marx, sure. But also, uh, if you look at someone like Johnny Carson, who has uh, a very suit. distinctive suit and posture that you recognize immediately. Yes, you are correct. I uh, I promise not to do any more impressions. I think... Uh, <laughs> I think I've exhausted all. Hey, did you do one there? Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm getting out of the sidecar. I'm getting out of the sidecar. Um, yeah, it, I just found her whole take on magic fascinating and concise. And the minute you hear her sort of uh, give you her philosophy, it immediately, I immediately went, oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. Of course that's right. The whole so. third surprise idea of, you know, the audience is expecting one of two things and you give them a third thing where they don't know if it's going to, if the magic's going to end magically or if it's going to end funny and yeah. take and try to rebuild that energy all the time. And once you hear her say that, if, uh, as I mentioned, you should go to the clips and watch it, you'll see uh, that in action where the audience really doesn't know after a certain point, uh, is this going to end funny? Is this going to end magically? Particularly in the chop cup routine, which is yeah. one of the better chop cup routines that I've ever seen. Yeah, it's uh, she is uh, so smart and understands what she's doing so well. Um, and uh, see, I think there are people that under that can do it, but can't articulate. I mean, and are brilliant on stage doing what they do, but could never articulate it. Say, well, it's, you know, comedy and magic share the same fuel source. Of course they do. I never thought of that. And I, you know, I have some foot in both of those circles, but I never really, but once she said it, it, uh, these, it was like fireworks going off in my head. Just yeah. brilliant. I thought just brilliant, brilliant interview. Uh, very, I, I just cannot wait to try to find, uh, a live performance of her that I can attend. And, you know, once once you start talking about costumes, certainly there are plenty of people in the magic. Matt King oh, yeah. comes to mind in terms of his costume. Uh, With Matt King, it's, it's, his, it's his brand. Yeah, right. His brand is plaid. 
Harry Anderson had with the hat and the glasses you know? and the painted ties. The, You're right. The, painted exactly. ties, yeah. the more you think about Penn and Teller, probably you could even lump in there. Absolutely. Because they wear identical Steve suits. Cohen has a very, a very distinctive, distinctive look. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and the guy we're going to be talking to in our next episode, David Kay, when he becomes Silly Billy, is immediately recognizable uh, as that character because he's yeah. he's built a really, really strong brand. Anyway, it was great talking to Carissa. Lots of fun stuff. I hope we have her back uh, the next season or so. But the reason we're here, our real reason, is to listen to the next chapter of The Ambitious that. Card. I know, we get caught up on everything, so we forget. <laughs> but last time we listened to Chapter 16... Eli got back from the hospital, Megan arrived, they spent the night together, and they did some discussions uh, about the mystical qualities of the deck of cards. And that'll take us right into chapter 17. The Ambitious Card, an Eli Marks mystery. Chapter 17. I awoke to music emanating from my cell phone which, by the sound of it, was in my pocket, in my pants, somewhere on my bedroom floor. I recognized the ringtone as the latest one I had assigned to Deirdre, which I'd come to think of as a sort of musical early warning system. If anyone ever wanted to chart it, the trajectory of the Eli-Deirdre relationship could be mapped entirely from the ringtones I had chosen for her calls. I started with a Rolling Stones tune and have stuck with them ever since, each song acting as a mini signpost of the state of our current emotional battlefield. The first ringtone I used was Honky Tonk Woman. We met in a bar. Although, to set the record straight, she was not gin-soaked and we were not in Memphis. We graduated to Let's Spend the Night Together and then settled in with Loving Cup for most of our marriage. You could tell things were headed downhill when I switched to 19th Nervous Breakdown. That evolved into I Can't Get No Satisfaction, followed by As Tears Go By, Sympathy for the Devil, and finally my latest selection, It's All Over Now. That one seems to be the one I'll stick with. I glanced at the alarm clock, which read 7.12 a.m. If she was calling at that hour, it could only be more bad news. I literally rolled out of bed onto the floor, doing a quick sweep with my hands until I found my pants. What now? I said as I leaned back against the bed frame and rubbed something out of my left eye with the palm of my hand. I glanced over at Megan, who appeared to still be sleeping, even with her hair a mess and with pillow wrinkles covering her face. She still looked amazing. Where are you? Deirdre said. Her tone sounded edgy and a little ticked off. Business as usual. You know, when I was a kid, no one ever asked that question on the phone. You always knew where someone was when you called them. Let's explore the myriad changes to the daily fabric of our lives wrought by the electronic age at a later time, she said as she cut me off. There's been another attack. I sat up straight. Who? Where? Your friend Franny Higgins, in her house about three hours ago. Franny, I said, louder than I had intended to. Megan stirred and opened her eyes. Is she, I asked, not quite able to say the words out loud. She's in the hospital, alive but in a coma. I'd like you to come down here to talk to us. And if I don't, Homicide Detective Fred Hutton is going to come get me, right? More than likely. We're at Hennepin County Medical in intensive care. Give me 30 minutes. 
I hung up and looked over at Megan, who was wide awake now, her head propped up on one elbow, a concerned look on her face. I've got to go to the hospital. It's Franny. She was attacked. She's in a coma. I'm going with you, Megan said. Before I could assemble anything resembling a decent protest, we were both dressed and in my car on our way downtown. I left a note for Harry on our way out, and Megan called one of her store clerks about opening up without her. Traffic was light, and our conversation was sparse due to the early morning hour or the news about Franny or the slight awkwardness that settles in after a first-time intimate encounter. But she took my hand as we walked through the parking ramp, and if I'd had any worries about the likelihood of a second encounter, those doubts vanished in an instant. So less than 24 hours after I had been discharged, I was back at the hospital, this time with Megan in tow. We made our way through the stark hospital lobby into the elevator bank and up to the fifth floor. When the elevator doors opened, I found myself face-to-face with homicide detective Fred Hutton. Behind him was his tiny partner, Miles Wright, and across the lobby was Deirdre, deep in conversation with the nurse. Two uniformed cops stood near the automatic door that led to the ICU. The doors swung open, and an orderly came through. I could see two more cops on duty further down the hall. Homicide detective Fred Hutton glared down at me. He was holding his cell phone in his hand. Marks, he said flatly. I was just going to call and send someone to pick you up. Happy to save you the cab fare, I said, moving past him and toward Deirdre. The nurse said a few hushed words to her as we approached, and then she slapped the silver panel to open the doors and disappeared into the ward. She's still in a coma, Deirdre said, anticipating my question. She's unconscious but stable, she added, looking from me to Megan and then back to me. This is Megan, my landlord, uh, neighbor. She's a friend of Franny's and me. I was finally able to sputter out. What happened? Homicide detective Fred Hutton and his partner joined our small group, standing like silent sentries behind me. Someone broke into her house around four this morning, Deirdre said. The intruder attacked and left her for dead, not realizing that she had managed to trigger the medic alert alarm that she wore around her neck. It might have been triggered inadvertently in the struggle, homicide detective Fred Hutton corrected. However it happened, Deirdre continued, when she didn't answer her phone, an ambulance was dispatched. They found her alive but unconscious. And what makes you think this is connected to the other murders, I asked. Deirdre looked over at Detective Wright, who opened the manila folder he was holding and took out what had become a very familiar sight, a clear plastic evidence pouch containing the King of Diamonds. It was found on the nightstand, and once again, our killer is exercising his wit. I understand Miss Higgins was a phone psychic, Deirdre asked, delivering her question as much to Megan as to me. Almost exclusively, Megan answered. Well, she was strangled with a phone cord. It made sense, in a perverse way. And what's even more interesting, Deirdre continued, is that Miss Higgins had two phones in the house, both of which were cordless. 
The killer brought his own phone cord? Apparently. And where's Boone during all this? I asked. Still in custody, homicide detective Fred Hutton said. I turned and looked up at him. But if he was in custody when this happened, obviously he's not the killer. We're still not convinced that this is a one-man operation. Speaking of which, where were you at around four this morning? He had just the slightest trace of a smile on his lips, like a cat that's convinced he's cornered a mouse. He was with me, Megan said suddenly. All eyes turned toward her, surprised at this admission. At 4 a.m., homicide detective Fred Hutton repeated. All night, Megan answered a bit defiantly. And you can attest that he didn't go out and come back, Deirdre asked. He would have had to climb over me to do it, Megan said. And I'm a very light sleeper, she added looking up at homicide detective Fred Hutton. There was a long silence as the detectives and the assistant district attorney exchanged looks. Can we see her? I asked, feeling that a change of topic was in order. For a minute, Deirdre said. The doctors are going to take her down for a scan in a few minutes to see if there's any brain damage. She hit the plate on the wall and the door swung open. Deirdre led the way and we followed. I looked back to see homicide detective Fred Hutton glaring after me, and then the door shut and he was gone. Both of the times I had met Franny, I had been struck with how tiny she was. Now, seeing her in the hospital bed with all the tubes and wires and the machines whirring and beeping, she seemed even smaller and certainly more frail. We stood outside her room, the three of us, looking through the window at the tiny woman who looked to be on the verge of being swallowed up by the large white hospital bed. Megan put her hand to her mouth the moment she saw her. I've never seen her be so still, Megan finally said in a whisper. Every time I've been with her, she's always been moving and moving and moving. She's a tough old bird, a voice from behind us said. I turned to see Dr. Levine, the red-haired and red-bearded doctor from the day before. He recognized my face, but I could tell he was having trouble placing me. I mime being hit on the head, and his face immediately brightened. Ah, yes, my unconscious friend from yesterday, he said in a jovial but appropriately quiet voice. Have you avoided being hit on the head since departing the warm and loving embrace of our care? So far. I said. That's what I like to hear, he said as he looked from me to Megan and Deirdre and then through the glass at Franny. We were all quiet for a long moment. Under the circumstances, he said, using an only slightly more serious tone, she's doing quite well, breathing on her own, which is a good sign. No bones broken in the struggle. Pulse and blood pressure are both good. Brain activity is strong but we still need to check for internal bleeding. The problem is, oxygen was cut off from her brain for, well, we don't know for how long. And so we're in wait-and-see mode right now. He looked at the three of us and then patted Megan's shoulder. Don't fret. I think she may still have a few surprises in her. I hope so, Megan said, her voice cracking just a bit. 
He nodded at me and moved back to the large, circular desk that filled the center of the unit. Two cops leaned casually on the desk, conversing quietly. They took turns looking in our direction and keeping tabs on our location. What's most distressing about this, Deidre said to no one in particular, is that she probably saw who attacked her. She just can't tell us who it is, at least not yet. We all watched the small figure in the bed for several more minutes. The only sound, the hum of voices at the desk, and the steady beep, beep coming from Franny's room. I anticipated another run-in with homicide detective Fred Hutton when we left the ICU, so I was pleased to find him in the midst of his own run-in as we exited the ward. When we came through the automatic doors, I could hear him arguing in a low voice with someone in front of the elevators and was surprised to see that his confrontation was with Megan's soon-to-be ex, Pete. Pete looked a little disheveled and certainly not up to going one-on-one with the Iron Giant. As soon as he spotted Megan, his face lit up. That's my wife right there, Pete said to homicide detective Fred Hutton, pointing in our direction. She'll vouch for me. Megan and I both stopped dead in our tracks, not certain why Pete was there or what homicide detective Fred Hutton may have said to him in our absence. In the momentary confusion of our arrival, Pete was able to sidestep both homicide detectives and make his way over to us. Megan, I called the shop this morning and Trina told me about Franny and said you were down here. Is she okay? She's still in a coma, Megan said taking a subtle half-step away from me. Pete looked over at me and seemed to see me for the first time. Oh, Eli, hi, he said, clearly a little confused about what I was doing there. I gave Megan a ride down here, I said by way of explanation. Oh, great, thanks, he said, and then turned back to Megan. Can I see her? Megan shook her head. Like I said, she's in a coma. They're taking her down for a scan but otherwise they don't know much. I mean, they're not sure when or if she's going to come out of it. Pete moved toward her, and they hugged awkwardly. I turned to see Deirdre looking at me from one side and homicide detective Fred Hutton looking at me from the other. Their expressions were inscrutable. Well, Pete said as he came out of the hug, as soon as I heard, I thought I should be here for you and for her. That's great, Pete, Megan said. I know she'd appreciate that. Megan looked at me, but managed to make it look like she was looking at everyone in the group. Well, she said, I guess we should be going. Call me if you hear anything, she said to me as an afterthought. I will. Pete took her by the arm, and they walked the short distance to the elevator. After a small eternity... The elevator arrived, and they stepped into it. Pete threw me a small wave, and Megan smiled weakly as the doors closed. Deirdre and homicide detective Fred Hutton were still looking at me with deadpan expressions. What? I asked, my voice coming out a tad higher than I would have liked. Her husband? Deirdre said dryly. They're separated, practically divorced. Uh Uh-huh she said, unconvinced. Am I needed here any longer? I asked. What's the hurry? 
Got a date? She responded, smiling up at homicide detective Fred Hutton, who returned the smile in spades. I have things to do, I said. Fine, she said. She turned to homicide detective Fred Hutton. Do you have any further need for Mr. Marks? I do not, he said, doing a lousy job of suppressing a grin. Deirdre turned back to me. Then you're free to go. As I walked to the elevator, I could feel them staring at me, but I refused to give them the satisfaction of turning around. My elevator arrived, and I stepped in, turning to press the button for the lobby. I looked up to see Deirdre and homicide detective Fred Hutton smiling at me from across the lobby. You know what I think, sweetie? Deirdre said to homicide detective Fred Hutton without taking her eyes off me. What's that, dearest? he replied. I think that someone might want to consider removing moral superiority from his list of annoying personal attributes, she said. I think you're right, he replied. The elevator was closing quickly, but I'm pretty sure they both had time to see me flip them off before the door shut. Eli! Hello there, Eli! I was hustling through the hospital lobby toward the freedom promised by the front revolving doors when I heard the voice calling after me. The nasally British accent could only belong to one person. I turned to see Clive Alban striding confidently toward me. Once again, he was dressed like a modern-day Oscar Wilde. I thought that was you, he said in a voice way too loud for the setting. I guess I shouldn't be surprised to find you here, he added, as he shifted into a conspiratorial tone that was almost louder than his regular voice. Being that you're still a person of interest, as the police are so fond of saying. Hello, Clive, I said, hoping that he would adopt my quiet conversational tone. You caught the scent on this one pretty early, I see. Yes, well, the police scanner is my new best friend, he said, his voice echoing off the marble walls. A phone cord, can you believe it? Isn't that delicious? I mean, I recognize there's a human life involved here. But you have to admire the chutzpah, don't you? A phone cord? He repeated, shaking his head admiringly. Wonderful turn of events, wouldn't you say? I believe I've got myself a real page-turner here. Not to mention the movie rights, Knockwood. He saw the look on my face and instantly switched to a more funereal tone. But as I say, he said somberly, there is a human life involved here. Can't let that get trampled in the fervor. A wonderful woman. Had a chance to speak with her myself just the other day. Tremendous energy. Lust for life and all that. Such a shame. He bowed his head for a brief second, then a moment later turned and bounded toward the elevators. Well, good to see you, Eli. Glad to see you're not in jail. Yet. Thank you. Thank you very much, I sighed, and then a thought occurred to me. Say, Clive, I called after him, was that you I saw talking with Boone the other day at the International House of Pancakes? That stopped him dead in his tracks. He spun around, and I saw about seven different emotions move across his face in an instant. International, my ass, he said, finally breaking into a wide grin. They are to be brought up on charges for that name. They are, to be kind, barely domestic at best. So that was you. 
Indeed it was. You should have come over and joined us. It might have made for a more enlightening conversation. Our friend Mr. Boone is a lover of the monologue. The more lengthy, the better. And he can certainly make quick work of a stack of pancakes, let me tell you. Impressive, in a nauseating sort of way. You were interviewing him for the article? The book, my friend, the book. However, Clive said as he slumped back against the wall dramatically, Mr. Boone, although talkative, says far more than he actually reveals. He mostly spoke in circles, very few of them concentric. The conversation was, in a word, fruitless. Know what I mean? He added, doing a fair impression of Boone's verbal tick. Too bad. You were probably one of the last people to talk to him before Ariana's death. And don't think I won't be playing up that angle to the hilt if our friend Mr. Boone turns out to be our killer, Knockwood. Well, must get back to the mines, as they say. No rest for the wicked and all that. He tossed a wave in my direction and headed again toward the elevator bank. Clive, security's pretty tight up there. I doubt they'll let you in on the fifth floor. Oh, my dear fellow, I'm not going to the fifth floor, he said, pressing the down button and turning back toward me. Perish the thought. I'm off to the cafeteria and then to the employee smoking lounge when you want the dish in a hospital or any other large bureaucratic institution. Go to where the lowest paid workers congregate. That's where you get the top drawer information. Even though he was across the lobby from me, he chose this moment to lower his voice. In spite of what you may have been taught, my boy, he said, taking on the tone of a wise schoolmaster, a straight line is not always the shortest distance between two points. At least, that's not always been my experience. He punched the down button twice more. Here we go, he said as the elevator door opened. Let the gossiping begin. Stopping at Akashic Records was not the shortest distance between the two points represented by the hospital and my home, but I ended up veering off course and stopping there anyway. I wasn't entirely certain why. Another bout of intuition, I assumed, which so far hadn't done me any real good. In fact, as I thought about it, I realized that my intuition to follow Boone had put me in the hospital and hadn't helped Ariana one bit. So much for the power of intuition, I concluded, as I pulled into the store's parking lot. As with the first time I entered Akashic Records, I was immediately assaulted by the wall of odor that greeted customers at the door. The smell had not abated since my first visit. If anything, it may have grown even more pervasive. However, the thick cloud of sickly candle smells didn't seem to be hindering business. The store was abuzz with customers. Several clerks were interacting with shoppers, but there was one clerk in particular I wanted to speak with. I finally spotted Michael chatting up a customer in the record area. I crossed the store and stood nearby, casually flipping through one of the used record bins, waiting for an opening. Actually, Michael said to the customer, a harried-looking woman in her forties, our credit policies have recently undergone a change. I know that Ariana used to allow seemingly endless credit, but after some study, we've determined that policy was fiscally unsound. Consequently, 
All outstanding balances will need to be settled before we can begin further treatments. I couldn't hear the woman's response due to the ambient noise in the shop and the low tone she was using, but Michael nodded as she spoke, looking like someone who was trying to look sympathetic. He couldn't quite pull it off. Michael shifted his weight from one leg to the other and crossed his arms, flexing his biceps and giving his back a stretch while he listened. He obviously spent a lot of time working out, and the tight pants and even tighter shirt that he wore highlighted all his time-consuming efforts. His hair was tousled in a very strategic manner, and when he smiled, it was clear that the whiteness of his teeth owed more to nurture than nature. His gaze darted around the store while he listened to the woman. I put my head down and continued to flip through the records, which consisted of easy-listening vocalists from the 70s and 80s. The woman must have finished her plea because Michael began speaking again. Well, I'm sorry you feel that way, but our policies are our policies, and we simply can't, in good conscience, make the kinds of exceptions that Ariana was so fond of making. He nodded again while the woman spoke. Yes, well, we're sorry to see you go, but... I would remind you that your outstanding balance is still your responsibility, and we will turn it over to a collection agency if the need arises. Thank you. Goodbye. These last words were said to the woman's back as she huffed toward the door, shaking her head. Michael flexed his biceps once more for good measure and then surveyed the store again. He stepped over to the nearest counter and began typing away on a computer keyboard. I pulled the first record out of the bin I was in front of and walked over to the counter. He heard my approach but did not look up. And did you find everything you were looking for today? He asked, still tapping away at the keyboard. He glanced at the album in my hand and did a double take, which caused me to look at the album for the first time. It was Olivia Newton-John's Have You Never Been Mellow. Yes, I did, I said. I've been looking for this one for quite a while, I added. He glanced up at me for the first time, and it took a moment for a look of recognition to settle in on his face. Mr. Marks, isn't it? He said, taking the album from me and ringing it up on the cash register. You were in here the other day, right? Yes, I was talking to Ariana. So sorry to hear what happened to her. Yes, a tragedy, he agreed. We were all devastated, but we must... Pick up and move on. That's the way she would have wanted it. I was about to say something, but we were interrupted by another employee, a too thin girl with stringy bleached blonde hair and a designer tie-dyed T-shirt. The 10 o'clock greeting is here and the 10.15 aura photo is early, she said, glancing at the album in Michael's hand and then over at me. Apparently, I wasn't enough to hold her interest because she immediately looked back to Michael for instructions. He looked at his watch. Serena's late, so you should do the reading, and if Andre isn't here by ten after, I'll do the photo. She nodded and walked away, guiding a customer through the beaded curtain and into the back room. Sorry about that. Michael said to me as he continued to ring up my purchase. We're having some minor staffing issues that still need to be resolved. Ariana left some mighty big shoes to fill, I'd imagine, I said. 
Michael gave a short laugh that ended up as a nearly silent snort. Literally, he said, suppressing a smile. Then his businesslike tone returned. Ariana always insisted on doing everything, the aura photos, the readings, all of that herself. Since her passing, I've instituted a new schedule which allows us to more fully utilize our treatment space, which in the past was woefully underused. So now we do full-body healings in the treatment room at the same time that we're doing aura photos in the studio. I've even got someone back there cleaning and repairing jewelry full-time now, which in the past only got done when Ariana had a few spare minutes. Much more efficient use of people, resources, and space. And more profitable as well, I would imagine. The album was three ninety-nine, so with sales tax, your total is four thirty. he said. I handed him a five, and he opened the cash drawer for my change. Yes, to answer your question, it is more profitable. Ariana had her way of doing business. I have mine. To each his own, he said, handing me two quarters and two dimes. So, are you officially the new owner of Akashic Records? I asked, pocketing the coins. He put the album into a slim brown paper bag and handed it to me. Nothing's official yet, he said, but I know that was Ariana's wish. We just need her will to go through probate before we can finalize everything. Can I help you with anything else today? A thesis occurred to me, and I decided to test a few of its elements. I stepped back and looked him over. Michael, you're in terrific shape. Do you work out? He smiled and unconsciously puffed his chest and flexed his biceps. Every day. You should try it sometime. He added with a fake laugh, giving me a critical once-over as he pulled his cell phone from his pocket. I don't know. Ever since Jim Fix dropped dead while jogging, I've been very skeptical of exercise, I said. That was a long time ago. You must have been an impressionable youth, I shrugged. Well, I know this much, Michael continued as he started tapping out a text on the phone. He would have dropped dead a lot sooner without exercise. Yeah, but either way, he ended up dead, so what's the point? This twisted logic brought him up short for a second, and he stopped texting, if only for a moment. So, I continued as he mentally scratched his head, how much can you bench press? 350, 375 on a good day, he said, resuming his minuscule typing. That's a lot of weight to pick up. How much do you suppose Ariana weighed? He narrowed his eyes, looking up from the phone's keypad. I don't exactly know. Is there anything else I can help you with? Yes, you mentioned that you do jewelry cleaning and repair. He sighed and dropped his phone arm to his side to dramatically demonstrate the degree to which I was boring him. Yes, we do. Is there a particular piece we can help you with? I shook my head. Nothing right now. I was just wondering, they still use cyanide for cleaning jewelry these days, don't they? This got less of a reaction from him than I would have liked. We use a number of different chemicals. Cyanide may be one of them. Would you like me to check? He asked. No, that's fine. One last question. Yes, he hissed, making no effort to cover his exasperation as he returned to his texting. Do you agree that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line? 
He stared at me for a long moment. I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a little fuzzy for me as well, but I'm working on it. Thanks for your help. I'm a little ashamed to admit it, but I was humming Have You Ever Been Mellow as I walked out of the store. And we're out. There's chapter 17 with Akashic Records. I know when I started doing the research for the Ambitious Card, and I was reading up about psychics, and I've long forgotten what it meant, but there's a thing in the psychic world called the Akashic Records. It's mm-hmm. something mystical. Yeah. And I immediately thought, oh, that's got to be a record store, Akashic Records. Yeah. And uh, in the next chapter, Eli will begin planning to do the kids show that he's volunteered to take over her, Nathan, who's going to be out of town. And I thought it'd be a good time now to talk to uh, an expert about the unique challenges of doing kids shows. Uh, And we're going to have just the best in next episode. That's David Kay, aka Silly Billy. Now you were familiar with Silly Billy before we talked to him. And everybody is, he's Everything I know about kids' shows, I learned from uh, either listening to his lectures, reading his books, or reading uh, his his monthly columns. Uh, he just is fascinating when it comes to understanding what works with kids, what doesn't, the age cutoffs. It's a, it's a really fun conversation, and it ties in so nicely with that chapter as poor Eli begins the process of trying to do what will turn out to be a, a very, very difficult kids' show. Anyway, uh, after that, we've got... A few final guests who help us round out season one. So amazing many, people. How many episodes do we have left in season one? This was- well, we're in number 18, and I think we go to 24. Can't do the math on that, but it's probably like five or six, somewhere in there. And we've got coming up after Silly Billy, we've got John Carney. Uh, Tina Leonard was nice enough to talk to us. Steve Spill. We'll talk about uh, Di Vernon. Uh, we have a return engagement by Rob Zabrecki and Morgan and West uh, coming back to chat with us a little bit. And then our uh, surprise guest for the final episode of season one. Do I get to know who that is before You'll, we actually record it? You will know it by the end of the recording. Oh, well, won't everybody know it by the end of the recording? Yep, exactly. Okay. Then I don't feel special anymore, but that's okay because I'm in the sidecar. That's I don't exactly have to right. know everything. You're, you're providing balance so the whole thing doesn't tip over. <laughs> It's more likely me than you. Don't worry about it. Very very fragile. I understand. All right. Well, check out the show notes. Some great links in there. And we will just see you next time for episode 119 with the amazing David K, a.k.a. Silly Billy. Take care, folks. This has been Behind the Page, the Eli Marks podcast with your hosts, John Gaspard and Jim Cunningham. Produced by Albert's Bridge Books at Grass Lake Studios. Find this podcast and all the books in the Eli Marks series at elimarksmysteries.com. That's E-L-I-M-A-R-K-S, mysteries.com. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.